she's getting married to a man she barely knows, but who she knows enough to suspect she can never really love. She's been fearless in the face of impossible odds and deadly foes, but this is different. She desperately wants to run, but there's nowhere to run to, and even if there was, she's paralysed with fear. This is a waking nightmare. And yet part of her knows there's no choice. Even if the event didn't form the centrepiece of her plan to take down the cult of the machine, there is the wider fate of the city to consider. While she is sure Tristan's plan for societal unification is merely the front for the machinations of other, more cynical players, there is one inescapable truth she cannot deny. The joining of Houses Montessario and Tereth is the greatest chance the city has to avoid descending into all-out civil war. This is not a marriage of convenience. It is a marriage of necessity. She is dimly aware that all attention is suddenly focused upon her. The High Devotant and Tristan are both looking at her expectantly. Um, what? she asks. The High Devotant looks pained but repeats, Philomena Cassandra Montessario, do you take this man to be your husband, to live forever in divine harmony, to love him, to honour him, to cherish him forever, and to issue all others in the sight of the seven? She stares back at him blankly, searching for the right answer, but all of a sudden he is staring past her with growing astonishment. She turns to see a writhing, swirling purple luminescence expanding behind her. Disturbing images flicker within its depths, all teeth and eyes and unnatural twisted forms. And from within its depths steps a young woman, no more than fifteen or sixteen years of age, dressed all in black and scarlet, and with glowing purple eyes that mirror the eldritch portal she has just stepped through. Sorry to interrupt, she says, grabbing Mina's arm and yanking her forcefully towards her and towards the portal. But you're going to need to come with me. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the Blades in the Dark rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. Following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. The web counted the costs of their previous missions and determined that there was a plan being hatched between the unseen. Houses Montessario and Tereth, and the Seekers of Knowledge, to turn the Machine Cult's infernal powder on a remaining enemy of the Kairos Dominion, the League of Free States. And now, they must decide how to react. Twelve hours earlier. 
Everyone is shouting at everyone else, out of their seats and gesticulating wildly. At least, the spider reflects, all this fire and vitriol is a step up from them moping about disconsolately. Now all they need to do is turn this energy into action. Time for some forward momentum. The plan comes to her in an instant, and she's talking over her bickering crew before she allows herself time to question the sanity of it. We have no way of knowing for sure, but my gut says Valerian is right. The Unseen are in league with the Houses, and mean to turn the Machine Cult's weapons into a means of prosecuting a devastating war. That leaves us with several immediate priorities. First of all, I burned an asset back when we were on the Mustang, and I've likely placed them in harm's way. Us too, I expect. Given what we now know, I think we need to see if we can bring Dr. Crop in and find out what else they know before someone else beats us to it. Salo, you're with me on that. Trace, I have a recon job for you. This Samada my sources have talked about, I need you to find out where that is being assembled, and to find out how and when they plan to load their skyships with the infernal powder. I hope we don't need to go down that route, but if it turns out that intervention is required, we're going to know what we are dealing with. Take Crater with you, in case things go sideways. Tatus, Valerian, you two get the fun part. The way I see it, this plan the Unseen are cooking up all hinges on the emerging Montessario Tereth power block. We put a stop to that power block, and we hopefully put a stop to the plan. I need you two to stop that wedding. And, by my reckoning, you've got about twelve hours to get it done. No pressure. The spider enjoys a good five seconds of blissfully unbroken silence before the room erupts into shouting once more, considerably louder this time. She leans back in her chair, smiling, suffused with an incongruous sense of exhilaration. Things may be desperate, probably more desperate than they have ever been, but they have their leads, they have their plans, and while there's breath left in her body, they still have a chance. Enough talk, she says, in little more than a whisper, but even so the room falls silent. She meets their eyes. It's time to act. So, either this is the best idea ever, or I've completely lost my mind. Dancers on a postcard. Not satisfied with splitting my party two ways in the previous few episodes, I'm going to go one better from this episode onwards, and I'm going to be splitting them three ways. I'm going to run three simultaneous scores. But before we get into that, let's just back up a bit and talk about where we are and how we got here. Because the way this story just joined up with itself has given me a serious set of unexpected goosebumps, and I wanted to share a little bit of the how and the why and the woo. As we were reminded in the teaser, Season 1 ended on a pretty huge cliffhanger. Mina was on the verge of getting married, a wedding she didn't want, but felt almost obliged to go through with in order to keep the city from descending into utter anarchy. And to kick season two off, I made the decision to step away from that plotline and switch protagonists. As I said back in the season two session zero, not satisfied with leaving season one on a wedding will-she-won't-she cliffhanger, 
we're going to leave that plot thread hanging for the start of Season 2 and take a sideways step into the murky, clandestine world of the Visitor and his dastardly little band of ne'er-do-wells. It's time to lean into the espionage elements of the Kairos setting and learn a bit more about the various factions that are set against one another's throats. But at that time, I had absolutely no idea how Mida's story and that of the web were going to eventually intersect, or even if they would. As with any of my oracle-prompted solo wandering through this world, I knew where I was, but not where I was going to be. Which meant that when a combination of oracle prompts, my interpretation of them, and my extrapolation of PC reactions to those prompts led me to a place where the two main story threads reconnected, well, it was as unexpected and exciting for me as I hope it was for you. It occurred to me at this point, just for fun, to go back and revisit the mythic list threads that had been established throughout Season 1, and that had been left dangling at the end of it. Some of the key ones were Find the source of the infernal powder Track down the visitor Investigate the whisperer's death And resolve the wedding Those goals seemed almost impossibly distant throughout most of Season 1 and even into much of Season 2 but now here we are, close to completion on pretty much all of them And the fact that a story built from a simple set of game mechanics and random prompts can resolve so neatly, and, at least in my mind, satisfactorily, constantly blows my mind. I honestly can't think of any creative activity that so consistently delivers this sort of dopamine hit. Seriously, if you're not trying this solo RPG malarkey yourself, I do urge you to give it a go. It really is an amazing experience. Anyway, let's get back to those three scores. Trace and Crater have themselves a stealth mission to gather intel on the planned military assault. They must trespass unseen into places they should not be in order to learn their secrets. Mechanically, for this mission, I'll need to determine a point of infiltration, select my team's loadout, and then make an engagement roll. Spider and Sallow are on a transport mission. They need to find the Doctor and bring them back to Team HQ, and I'll need to define their route and means and make another engagement roll to see how well that's working out for them. And last, but not least, Valerian and Tatters are also on a transport mission. They need to get to Mina and then escort her through danger and away to safety, assuming, of course, that Mina is willing to go. This mission has already started in the teaser at the start of the episode with the decision that Tatters was going to teleport in, grab the target and teleport back out again. Again, an engagement role will determine how successfully that mission begins. For all three of them, I'm going to set a 10 segment clock each and then see how things play out. Off we go. Things had started out pretty well, Trace reflected. She should have known it couldn't last. A few quiet drinks with an old military buddy of Sallow's, followed by a few louder ones, quickly revealed that the gathering of an armada of ships was indeed underway. But not, as they had supposed, anywhere near Kairos. Instead, the invasion staging point was the continent of conflict, or more specifically, beneath the continent of conflict, several days' flight away. 
there, amongst the vast crystalline outcroppings that covered the continent's underside, a fleet of skyships was gradually being assembled in secret. Though, frankly, that secret appeared to be of the open variety. It was hard to keep anything of that scale entirely quiet. And that raised the next question. How was the fleet being supplied with explosives? And surprisingly, it was Crater that had volunteered a workable theory. There was, he reasoned, only one place with the storage and shipping infrastructure necessary for the job, the docks. Crater knew them like the back of his hand, and not just because that was where most of the city's dreamdust parlours could be found. As a docker, born and bred, and then later as a bare-knuckle prize-fighter, earning his trade among the back alleys of the docks, Crater was a local. He knew the place, and he knew the people. And so that is how they'd found themselves, at well past midnight, in a ramshackle warehouse on Southside, in the seediest area of a seedy district. They'd only become aware of the victim's muffled sobs as they crept out across the rafters, peering down into a warehouse notable for its utter lack of barrels. The building might have been utterly devoid of stock, but it didn't mean it was empty. Far from it. What the hell is that? Crater whispers, trying to make sense of what he's seeing. Two figures, one red, one white, stand below them. Actually, one stands, the white one, holding up some sort of red rag in their right hand and a bloody knife in their left. They are naked, androgynous, curiously featureless. The red figure, a woman, is hanging opposite them, spread eagle, head slumped forward. And she's red, Crater realises, because she is entirely drenched in blood. Oh shit, Trace whispers as the pale figure pulls the rag over their face. Except it's not a rag at all. The red woman's head comes up with a bubbling moan, eyes mad with pain and desperation, to reveal a bloody mess of muscle and sinew where their face should be. Every scrap of skin has been flayed from their head. The white figure, wearing another person's face, begins to morph and change. Within moments, their body is transformed. The skin turns olive in hue. Long, curling black hair tumbles over bare shoulders. Hips broaden, breasts emerge. The shape-changer stretches out one arm to examine it, and a smile spreads across its face. Yes, this will do, she says, nodding. I do hope there are no hard feelings, Katari. I hope you understand. This is just business. She turns to a table behind her, puts the knife down, and takes up a short bone saw. Well, all right, that is a lie. And that is pleasure too, I confess. This part is my favourite. All those delicious memories flowing into me. She reaches out a hand, cupping the woman's ruined cheek almost tenderly as she raises the saw. It's time to eat your brain. And that's when Katari, brutalised and desperate, looks up, past the unseen, and gazes straight into the faces of Crater and Trace perched on the rafter overhead. Curious, the shapeshifter turns to follow her gaze, and her own eyes widen in surprise. She recovers quickly. I am afraid you two really chose the wrong warehouse to try and rob, she smiles, then raises two fingers to her mouth and lets out a piercing whistle. I am afraid... Your night is about to come to a very 
unpleasant end. There's a running battle in the nighttime streets of the Mercer's Quarter, or rather, what had been the Mercer's Quarter, before the flying fortress formerly known as the Mustang Casino crash-landed here. The crash could have been far worse, all things considered. Those aboard must have reinstated at least some of the counter-gravitational arcane drives, because the wrecked casino, at least semi-intact, now lays spread across several streets and crushed buildings, rather than at the bottom of a gigantic crater. It's what had come after the crash that had turned the Mercer's Quarter into a raging war zone. There'd been fire and massive property damage, of course. That certainly set the stage. But it was the sudden shift in power balance that had really set the dry tinder ablaze. The Mercer's Quarter was the commercial engine room of the city, a place of immense soft power, immense vested interest, and immense wealth. Dropping a giant casino packed full of mercenaries and vampires and panicking representatives of half the power players in the city into the middle of all that, and at a time when the whole city had been teetering on the knife edge of civil war, well, it might have been kinder to go the crater route. Now, just as many people are dying, if not more, they're just doing it, one at a time. The spider risks a glance around the corner of a burned-out building, then pulls back sharply. Back the other way, Sallow, quickly! They slip into the cover of the building, crouching low as a squad of perhaps twenty shady-looking characters, all tough as boiled leather and armed to the teeth, come running around the corner. Their black clothing and stylized tattoos mark them as member of the Crows, a criminal gang from out of the spot. As tough as they look, it's them doing the running, and someone else entirely doing the chasing. A couple of the braver ones pause in their flight, turning to fire crossbow bolts back down the street. Their bravery doesn't buy them much, unless you count a quick death. From out of the night, vampires leap down, fangs sinking into soft flesh and tearing throats clean out. Ever so slowly, Sallow pulls back inside the building, his curiosity to see what's going on out there quite overweighed by his desire not to have what's happening out there happen to him. Spider, he whispers, is it too late to join one of the other teams? The preparation for this mission had been so simple for Valerian. A few pulled strings, the right people leaned on, the right palms greased, and he'd landed himself a ticket to the event. As backup, he'd be going in through the front door, and all that was left for him to do was witter on about what to name their team. Team Wedding Crasher? The Crashers? Tatters had done her best not to let her fear and frustration show, in part because it never did a blind bit of good with that self-absorbed idiot, and in part because, well, there was something she had neglected to tell the rest of the crew. She had pushed herself hard with that portal on the prison roof. Far too hard. She'd not been lying when she'd explained the risks to the others. Death had been a very possible outcome. She'd not lied, but she'd not told the whole truth either. Because she'd not told the whole truth about her arcane powers from day one. Oh, she'd explained the demon dimensions, that other world filled the brim with howling, clawing, slavering monsters desperate to break through into the chained world and devour, destroy and corrupt everything in it. She'd described, vaguely, 
how her power was drawn from that world, but she'd never, not once, let slip about Satara. In the beginning, when she'd first begun to explore the powers that could be drawn from the demon dimensions, Satara had just been a name in a book. An abstract concept, an idea, a potential source of knowledge and power. And to begin with, during those early summonings, the demon had supplied just that. She knew the dangers, of course. Demons had to be dealt with from a position of power and control. Everything was a transaction, and so it was vital to dictate the terms of those transactions. And she'd largely succeeded in doing so, up until the prison break. But in that final jump, her powers all but spent, she had seceded control. Satara had sensed her desperation and whispered terms that she would never otherwise have dreamed of accepting. And yet, with the lives of her crew in the balance, she had accepted, and the balance of power between her and the demon had shifted. Shifted again, she realises now. How could she not have been aware of the demon's gradual, insidious rise? Had he been deceiving her all this time? Or had she been deceiving herself? Regardless, they had a mission to accomplish, and her part in it was simple. Teleport into the wedding, grab Mina, and teleport back. Only, it wasn't quite that simple. Because a blind teleport of that range into a location she had never seen was a long way beyond her powers. For that kind of jump, she was going to need to bargain with Satara. Astonishingly, the demon had agreed, and readily. Passage there. Passage back to this I shall grant you to Tanya Kaminov, and there shall be no price, unless you desire more. She should have known better. Sorry to interrupt, she says as she appears before the altar in the great chapel of Tereth Palace, grabbing Mina's arm and yanking her forcefully towards her, and towards the portal. But you're going to need to come with me. There is a collective intake of breath from those on the dais and the hundreds of guests in the pews. And that's when the portal behind her vanishes. And the demon's voice whispers gleefully in her mind. Passage there, I promised. And passage back. But I did not promise when. If you desire more, then let us discuss terms. Tatters is suddenly acutely aware of where she is, of who surrounds her, of just how much sharpened steel is about to be drawn. Her eyes meet Valerian's out there in the crowd. He looks as shocked and panicked as she feels. And that's when Mina Montessario's fist connects with her jaw. And we're off. Engagement rolls rolled. Circumstances and consequences provided by the oracles, and naturally, everyone instantly is straight up to their necks in shit. When, let's face it, would we want it any other way? I really do love this Blades in the Dark mission initiation mechanic. Straight to the meat of the action. Provide the backdrop, set the stakes, and go. To provide a quick overview of how that context and those stakes were reached, let's start with Trace and Crater. I figured that finding out where the fleet was being assembled was more a gather-information role than part of the infiltration mission, and so I made that role first and got a straight success. I interpreted the clarifying oracle prompts, 
a cartwheel and a crystal structure, has the crystalline underside of the chain's world's central continent, Conflict. Conflict is where the four great chains terminate, and is named for the historical battles that have plagued it for centuries prior to the rise of the Kairos Dominion. Now it serves as the breadbasket of the chained world, a temperate land of rolling hills, dense forest, and open grassland. Farming country. Anyway, with the fleet location established, I gave my characters agency, letting them decide what to do next and where to do it, and the docks seemed like a sensible place to investigate. I made my engagement roll, and, well, it'll come as no surprise, I'm sure, the result was bad. The crew found themselves in a desperate position. I rolled on the Alone in the Dark picture oracle and got the same spying eye that I'd previously interpreted as the Unseen back on the Mustang, along with what looked to me like flayed skin. A few more simple questions and a dip into the Une NPC generator gave me my scene's starting position. I followed the same process for the Spider and Sallow. The context here was the happy byproduct of random chance. Before starting this session, I'd kicked off by asking about the fate of the Mustang, and had learned that it had indeed crashed into the city, but not at terminal velocity. It was largely intact, which is more than could be said for the buildings it landed on. And then I rolled to see which district it had come down in, and of course it was the Mercer's Quarter, home and business residence of Dr. Crop. Thank you, Dice Gods. The result of the engagement roll here was that my crew started off in a risky position, and some more rolls indicated that the crows were involved in a battle that included multiple factions. And finally, to tatters. Oh dear. As I hope is quite apparent, this engagement roll resulted in another desperate outcome. And as to the role of Sitara, well, that perhaps requires a little bit more explanation. In assembling my dice pool for this engagement roll, I noticed that I'd marked Sitara, a demon, as one of Tata's contacts on her character sheet. I figured that this was perhaps some sort of infernal patron that could boost her power, and so I added a dice representing the demon to my pool. So, when things turned out poorly, it was logical to ask the oracle, does Sitara double-cross her? Yes, but, the oracle replied, and I took that but to mean yes, but temporarily. The rest, about her ever-worsening deal and the demon's growing influence, just followed naturally from those roles. Although, in hindsight, I think that tonally that section was probably quite heavily coloured by subconscious memories of an Alan Moore Green Lantern short story called Tigers, drawn by the wonderful Kevin O'Neill. So, from a few dice rolls, some pre-existing world-building, and vague memories of a 30-year-old comic book, we have our triple starting points, along with our original protagonist drawn back into the tale. Where will all this end up? I hope you'll join me to find out next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. 
you can email me at thelonadv at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com. You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.